This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Santita Jackson Show on the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, AM 950 Radio is my home to the north in Minneapolis-St. Paul, WCPT. I'm right here in Chicago, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station. Keep it locked right here. You're going to get the latest and the greatest when the DNC comes to town in the summer of 2024. Cannot wait, cannot wait, cannot wait. And the great latest and the greatest in politics and social and cultural issues, too. So... I want you to call me right now. Call me and let's talk about how the Bible is used or misused in this Mideast conflict. Uh, Indeed, many uh, Christians, not the right-wing evangelicals, but many other uh, religious scholars are saying that Netanyahu has abused the Bible to make his point, to justify genocide. Mm. And then the U.S. Congress is now putting on the table anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. And a lot of people are very alarmed by that, so we'll be talking about that at the bottom of the hour. I want to know what your thoughts are about this, because so much is wrapped up in this conflict, right? So much, so much, so much. And you just, uh, and so much of it is like biblical, Right. But those for those of us who are not theological scholars, and I certainly am among those, I am not one. I read the Bible, have gone to Sunday school, yeah, consider myself to be biblically literate, but I'm not a scholar. Uh, scholars have said, as Pastor uh, Stephen Thurston has said, mm, wait a minute, for those of us who've really done a deep dive on the study, there has been an abuse here. And, you know, Pastor Thurston, I'm going to ask you about covenants, because the covenant gives you um, it gives you it gives you certain if you don't break the covenant you get certain blessings but with the blessings come obligations you're not supposed to sit on top of people right you're supposed to help to lead people and we have to talk about that today and what about anti-semitism equating anti-semitism with anti-zionism Hmm. What do you think about that? Call me at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. Let's go to some of these headlines. The U.S. set a grim record for mass shootings in a single year. The 37th and 38th shootings this year, in which four or more victims were killed, happened on Sunday. It's the highest number of mass killings with a gun since at least 2006. The latest deaths brought the 2023 total to 197, not counting the shooters, yet another record. But that accounts for only a tiny percentage of U.S. gun deaths. Israel's military is pushing into the southern Gaza Strip where they told the Gazans to go. Wow, what are they to do? Israel has called the new phase of its war in Gaza after a pause in ended Friday. Uh, this is their new phase. The U.N. chief said yesterday that civilians have nowhere safe to go. Now, Israel told them to go to the south, and now they're bombing the south. How does that work? In the West Bank, since October 7th, nightly Israeli raids in the Janine refugee camp have killed dozens of Palestinians. And remember, over this weekend, in one 24-hour period, 
at least 700 Palestinians were killed by the IDF. Not to mention nearly 16,000 Palestinians have been killed. 1.8 million have been displaced. They don't have enough restrooms. They don't have enough showers. Now, if the bombs don't get them, disease will. Got to continue to stay focused on this story, everybody. The U.S. could soon run out of money to support Ukraine. Funding will dry up in weeks, the White House told Congress yesterday. It said that it would kneecap Ukraine in its war with Russia. The Biden administration has requested around $61 billion for Ukraine. A Senate vote on the request is expected this week. The Supreme Court seemed torn about a Purdue Pharma bankruptcy plan. The justices questioned the plan, which would allocate billions of dollars to ease the opioid crisis, but it would also shield the Pickler family from future lawsuits, allowing them to keep the billions they made off of the opioid crisis and other pharmaceuticals. The bankruptcy fight is part of a reckoning over the role of businesses in an unprecedented public health crisis. A ruling is expected by early summer. What do you think about that? Math scores for U.S. students hit an all-time low on an international exam, the PISA exam. Given to students in 81 countries was the first comparison of global achievements since the pandemic upended education. 15-year-olds in the United States had a 13 percentage point drop, a plunge in math scores between 2018 and 2022, but the U.S.'s relative ranking still improved compared with other countries. Wow. In Chicago, we're going to have a high of 41 degrees. You can expect snow showers. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 35 degrees, cloudy. And in the NFL, the Bengals 34, the Jaguars 31, and an overtime win, a thriller. In the NBA, well, the Chicago and Minnesota teams are quiet until tomorrow night. In the NHL, the Predators will be playing Chicago, and the Wild will be playing the Flames. And why did undefeated Florida State not make the playoffs? You know, I'm going to examine that. Because, I mean, I don't really keep up with college football anymore, um, except for the MEAC conference, you know, because Pastor Stephen Thurston and I went to black school, so, you know, that's like the big thing for us, going to Bayou Classics and things like that. That's great. Isn't that right, Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> You know, we have, we have a we get down for the crown at our homecomings, and you have tens of thousands, if not hundred, a hundred thousand plus, at the Southern University game. That's been iconic for years. Howard's game, Morehouse's game, and people come in from everywhere. If you went to an HBCU, you are there, right? Yes. Because you're gonna bump into your friends. There, you're not there for the game. You're there for the fellowship. Are you wait a minute and to get dressed? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my goodness. The first time I saw a woman with a full-on silk outfit was at a Howard football game. I could not wait to get back. Well, I was a freshman. It was my first football game. And I could not wait to get back to the dorm to tell my parents. I was like, wow, seriously? My father said, please don't do that. Don't. <laughs> she, I mean, she was, she was splendid and resplendent in her sartorial glory. How you doing? The author of Mirror Moments. Everybody put Mirror Moments under your Christmas tree. It will bless you. Boy, taking a look in that mirror. Oh, you get upset with somebody else and, ooh, look at who I see. Me? Mm. Pastor Thurston, how you doing? All is well today. Excited to be with you. It's normal. And I want to help the people to recover from rejection. 
we're getting ready for a new year, and some people have experienced some stuff in 2023. Rejection may have been a part of that. I want you to get over that and get better and live through it so that 2024 can be even better. Uh, many people, they enter relationships seeking and expecting unconditional love, often subconsciously hoping to salve unmet needs and wound from BDS, your childhood. Unfortunately, the storyline doesn't always lead to a happily ever after. As we find ourselves running into the relational roadblock of rejection, from the departure of a spouse to being fired from a job or snubbed by friends or even ostracized by family, rejection either can hurt and more than we expect it to. Science actually reports that sensitivity to emotional pain resides in the same area of the brain as physical pain. And so love can stimulate such strong, feel-good neurochemicals that rejection can actually feel like the withdrawal that people experience when they're exiting drug addiction. So if you suffer from low self-esteem, rejection can devastate you. If you deal with codependency issues, rejection can cause your world to crumble. And here's the good news, though. You'll recover. Yes, you'll get through this. You'll get to the other side. Some estimates say that in about 11 weeks after the experience, you'll begin to feel better, but the same time frame is dependent upon a few factors. Duration of the relationship, self-worth, attachment style, the degree of intimacy and commitment, and the foreseeability of that detachment. Uh, so don't think, hey, I'm at 11 weeks, Stephen. I haven't gotten past this. Hey, everybody's a little different. That's just a broad stroke an average of the time frame that many people spend moving through that space. Now, rejection leads to something, something that's called grief. And I want us to know that it's natural and normal. So I need you to honor that stage and those feelings instead of trying to or expecting yourself to just move on. Grief is a process, as I shared with us last week. The road to recovery won't necessarily be in the fast lane, but know that your actions will play a role in how long this process takes, as well as if you grow from the experience. So first, you need to cut off contact with the one or the ones who rejected you. I know that's hard to hear, but you got to do it. That, that, that means stop stalking their social media page, too. <laughs> Number two, second, list the benefits of the relationship ending. I need you to list that out so you can see it and process it. And then third, avoid triggers that unnecessarily bring up the painful feelings. Now, unfortunately, the greatest damage rejection causes is usually self-inflicted. After the rejection experience, we call ourselves names, lament our shortcomings, and become disgusted with ourselves. And it's when our self-esteem is hurt the most that we go on and we damage it further. I get it. Rejection is never easy, but knowing how to limit the psychological damage it inflicts and how to rebuild your self-esteem will help you recover sooner and move forward in life with confidence. So let me leave you with some in intentional, internal, proactive strategies that will pave the way for your restoration. Number one, have zero tolerance for self-criticism. You can focus on the problem or problems without being fixated on them. Number two, don't take it personal. Most rejections are due to fit and circumstances. 
an exhaustive examination of your deficiencies in an effort to understand why things didn't work out is unnecessary and it can actually be misleading. Number three, revive your self-worth. When your self-esteem takes a hit, remind yourself of what all you do have to offer, what all you do bring to the table. Affirm the aspects of you that you know are valuable. And then finally, number four, boost your feelings of connection. Rejection destabilizes our need to belong, leaving us feeling unsettled and socially untethered. Make sure that you have a community to connect with outside of that relationship, outside of that work environment, outside of that, that small friend circle, your, your flossy posse, your inner group. Make sure that you've got some community that can, that can be there for you as a source of support as you're kind of rebounding from that rejection. The good news today is that rejection happens, but you can definitely recover from it. I hope you have an amazing day. That. I appreciate that. And those are the kinds of kinds of things. That's Pastor Stephen Thurston, everybody. Facebook Live every th- every Friday. At, is it at still at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time? Every Friday, 3 p.m. Central Standard Time on my Facebook page. That's Stephen with PH, Stephen Thurston. Find me there. And you can always go back and catch previous videos. They're all stored there on Facebook on my page. I love that. Those are the kinds of things that I need to go to church for because I need that kind of help. Yeah. You know, because it's it's practical. It's practical. That's one of the things that I love about your ministry. It's very practical and practicable. Right? Yes, ma'am. I mean, because that's what I need. I need to know, you know, people break up and they make up during the holidays. How do I handle that? You know, and that's yep. that's a real thing. That's a very real thing. And so everybody, you know, just think about that. Think about that. But get mirror moments because he digs down deep on those issues. Sending you so much love, Pastor Stephen Thurston. Back to you. I love you. Thank you. I love you. I love you. I love him. I've known him so long, all of our lives, and then some. Hey, I've got <laughs> Dr. Shanina Knighton. But Pastor Stephen Thurston, before you go, I came across a... A report that says that the new hot spot, we're going to have to talk about this with you and Dr. Knighton and, and so many others. The South is the new epicenter of the new HIV crisis. Didn't know that. You know, we're looking at COVID and all these other things. HIV, so many of these other issues are still with us. But Dr. Shanina Knighton, you know, she was teaching over in Saudi Arabia last week. We're so proud of her. The internationally renowned international. Go, girl. So what's on your mind today, having changed your perspective on everything, having been out the country, seen some other things, and having seen, having, having dealt with people who see you differently, right? Yes, no, beautiful thing, okay? Um, it, it has been, like, and I'll keep explaining that it's so much that still, I'm still debriefing. <laughs> um I think it's important, Santita. I know that we've been talking about COVID, RSV, common cold, allergies being amongst us right now. But I also think that what cannot be ignored is the pattern of what's going on with this, I would say, mysterious wave of childhood pneumonia that is surging right now in China. That is unusual. 
Alpha is taking on a similar pattern of COVID-19. Um, the reason why I am bringing this up now is because you and I both know that February 29th of 2020, we were experiencing the first case of COVID-19 in the U.S. for which it resulted in a death in Seattle. And by the time it had broke in the news and it was popular, the habit had already started here within our own country. So me, of course, within the vein of prevention, want to make sure that we are thinking through that it is coming. It's inevitable. Like there's one airplane right away. But how do we make sure that we are protecting our children? Oddly enough, when I was out of town, and I'll never forget, me and Robert was at the airport. Robert tapped me on the shoulder to look over, and there's a kid that is literally, I kid you not, eyes bloodshot red, and it's just vomiting on the ground at the airport. And the mother is just looking away as if nothing is happening. And I'm, my baby is really sick. You're talking about coughing controllably and everything. And so then when the reports broke out about this child pneumonia with this respiratory illness, it made me wonder what is going on. And so the thing is, is even though we know that there are common pathogens, meaning harmful germs that will be responsible for infections, when we're looking at this new surge of pneumonia, we have to make sure that we're equipping our children with making sure that they are aware that other children at school may be sick and that they should still be cleaning their hands. And if there is a significant amount of kids at school that is sick or that are starting to be out of school, that it is important for them to put on their mask, even though some schools are mask optional. Having that conversation with your child about being safe opposed to being, let's say, maybe ridiculed because of self-esteem from the standpoint of them being one of the only kids that don't have it could be a matter of them being safe in a situation where we may be embarking upon new sorts of outbreaks over here in our own country within the next couple of months. Wow. I mean, I I don't know what it is. You know, people bring out well, you know, a lot of people have a lot going on. You know, you bring out your child and you know the child's very sick and uh, I don't know. I mean, some people are just desperate to get to where they need to go. I, I don't know. God bless them. God bless them. But I think that if we made health care a right all over the world, things would function very differently, Dr. Knighton. They really would. We'd be very different. I do agree. It's not a right, it's a privilege. It's a privilege, and you know it, because certain medicines, certain treatments are available to the wealthy and to uh, to the well-heeled and to the politically connected. Uh, a whole world of medicine exists that most of us don't even, cannot even imagine. Can't even imagine. When you go to the Mayo Clinic, it doesn't even smell like a hospital. And you don't have to come outside, everybody. You go through the tunnels and go from each house, one hospital to the next. And it feels like a hotel. And then the hotel's connected to the hospital. I mean, wow. Cleveland uh, Clinic's the same way. You know that. That's where you are. And it's just it's just a lot. Everybody, let's talk about uh, this first topic. Uh, 
Is Prime Minister Netanyahu abusing the Bible to impress U.S. evangelicals? A lot of people saying, yes, he is. He's abusing the Bible. What do you think? Call us at 773-763-9278. Back in just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show, WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station. I am Santita Jackson. It's a joy to be with you. Today, uh, we're going to be talking about Zionism, anti-Zionism being equated, being equated with anti-Semitism. Uh, that is a resolution that is going that is pending in Congress right now. What do you think about that? That can have tremendous, tremendous consequences, and I want to know what your thoughts are about it. But right now, you know, we're, the interesting thing about the Middle East is that it hits us where we live, politically, socially, culturally, and in terms of our belief system, our faith, our religion. And so... Uh, there's all we've always been taught, really, whatever your faith tradition about the promised land and about chosen people, and and so when, and most of us are not biblical scholars. So when you have um, when you have a, a Benjamin Netanyahu using the Bible, and then biblical scholars say, wait, 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 he's misusing the Bible. You got to pay attention to that. Because most of us don't do a deep dive on the Bible. Most of us do not do that. And so let's talk about this electronic intifada report and many, many others. When I started digging, I just found so much. They said in his press briefing on the 27th of October, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who used to live in Philly. Did you all know that he was raised there in Philly in part? Well, he cited... Um, a biblical reference to Amalek in the context of the destruction of Hamas and to eradicate this evil from the world. This pseudo-religious spin may have confused the writer continues to write Donald Wagner. Uh, in fact, he is a retired Presbyterian uh, minister, Reverend Dr. Wagner. This pseudo-religious spin, as he called it, may have confused all but his ultra-right religious followers, both Jewish and Christian Zionists. Netanyahu continued... We remember and we are fighting. Our soldiers are part of a legacy of Jewish warriors that goes back 3,000 years. Now, what appeared bizarre, Reverend Dr. Wagner continues, to many was a highly intentional religious justification for Israel's ethnic cleansing or genocide of Gaza's Palestinian women, men, and children. In fact, two-thirds of those who've been killed have been women and children. The annihilate Amalek theme invokes support from the divine in this modern crusade to exterminate them, interpreted today as every Palestinian. Netanyahu's base of political support among militant settlers finds inspiration from these violent biblical texts. So what do you think about that? And what about the promised land? And what about the covenant that promises the promised land? And what if the covenant gets broken? Do you still get the promised land? Well, I said, let me go to... uh, Two people who have studied the Bible, who've done that deep dive. We've got Reverend Dr. Jeanette Wilson, who, who's also a lawyer, so she understands 
what we're looking at and from the legal perspective, but she is an ordained minister. And um, I'm so glad that you're with us today. Of course, you are from the Maple Park. I mean, many of us know you from Rainbow Push, being the head of the Push Excel program, but you are a pastor at Maple Park United Methodist Church here in Chicago, Dwight McKee, a brilliant political, uh, political and biblical scholar. Let me start with you, Reverend Doctor. Uh, excuse me, not Reverend Doctor, but Reverend Jeanette Wilson Esquire. What do you make of many people when he made the reference to Amalek? Number one, what is Amalek? But when he made the reference, it was unsettling to people because they said, are you using this particular instance in the Bible to justify genocide? Talk to us. And then many people objected. Well, I think uh, if, if you look at the Old Testament in particular, there were a number of battles that uh, people of God were forced to uh, to deal with uh, in warring countries. You know, it's, when you look at our nation today, you have different uh, positions of power all over the world, and as people seek power, they oppress other people in, in their efforts to accumulate land or, or resources uh, rather than negotiating with people as uh, Reverend Jackson has done. There are forces and uh, political forces all around the world today and then that decide, I want this particular piece of property, I want this uh, land, and therefore I will just take it. And so when you look at this Old Testament text, we had uh, a different uh, kingdoms in the Old Testament that uh, fought with each other about who was the most powerful and who was entitled to the land resources. Much of, many of the fights that you, we see today and that we saw in biblical times were about access to land and resources as uh, people moved around from place to place. You know, our biblical ancestors were nomadic meant they moved from place to place. And the question is, uh, God gave us uh, support and opportunities uh, in various places. And so here you have, uh, with the uh, second, I think he, he, he used Second Samuel, the 15th chapter, uh, where the... Uh, there's a, there's a reference to God told uh, Saul to to defeat uh, the Amalekites, and therefore uh, there's this idea that God is suggesting that we annihilate a population and wipe them out, uh, and it's it's really taken way out of context. Okay, well, Dwight McKee, your thoughts. Well, you, you know, you have to be very careful when you go to those, those scriptures because you notice he's very selective about what scriptures he chose to to operate in because, you know, the, the Jews lost to the Assyrians uh, and then they got captured by the Babylonians. And then ultimately the Romans threw them out of Israel and took the whole land, which is how come they're in the situation they're in today. And so if you take it to this logical conclusion, uh, that one war is not the whole story. You set yourself up for 
the, the rest of those scriptures that did not necessarily work to Israel's advantage when they dealt with, you know, other countries. That was a very small country that they dealt with when God told them, you know, to, to kill everybody and a very pagan country and, and uh, a country that had its own uh, history of child abuse and burning kids. And I mean, there was a, a real reasons he focused on that country. But in a broader sense, as the scriptures evolved and the Israelis had to fight, the Jews had to fight larger countries with more capability and more military capacity, they lost those values, those those battles severely. The Syrians put them in the bondage and split them, split open the kingdom. The Babylonians captured them and kept them in bondage for 70 years did not let them out. And ultimately in 70 AD, the Romans just came in and decimated the whole land and ran them completely out of Israel. So you have to be very careful how you read those scriptures and where you fit in. And you cannot be that selective because you have to be careful what you wish for. That thing would will uh, uh, double cross you and take you somewhere else. But this is this is a real movement in the American church, uh, the Zionist movement, particularly when you have John Hagee and those like that. Many of the big ministers we see on television are Christian Zionists, um, and this appeals to them directly. Uh, politically, Dwight, what is this meant to do? Uh, it's meant to justify uh, Israel's position and to reinforce why the United States has to get involved in behalf of Israel. Uh, it, it's really a legitimization of colonialism, which they've always done with the Bible, you know, which these uh, white evangelicals have always done with this chosen people, manifest destiny. Uh, God has given us the right to this land. My country is of the you know, from sea to sign and sea. Uh, it, they have, we have a history of that, of using the Bible to justify our, our secular ambitions. And when it's about land and oil and resources, the only way to really give that justification is to find it somewhere in the Bible, distort it, and say, you know, God has given us dominion over this. Therefore, we have a divine right to take your land, to subjugate you, to kill you, and to call it, you know, call it freedom, justice in the American way, and in God we trust. And so it's no different that they're doing there than they did with here with the American industry, uh, the natives here, when they took their land, justified it with the Bible, and put us in slavery. And justify that with the Bible too. You know that's that's how they operate. That's mm. that's not new. Let me go to Lee. I think we just got Reverend Doctor Yuri, but before I come to you, uh, I've got Lee who's called in. Lee, what's on your mind today? <laughs> Jeez, I, this is crazy, but I'll tell you anyway. <laughs> um, uh, I spent seven ever since uh, Trump was inaugurated. All I've done is research what's wrong with America. 
and now I figured out what's wrong with the world. And you know, it's all come to me by coincidence. And one of the most important coincidences was listening to your show. I uh, have been driving to a, a men's fellowship breakfast from our church early in the morning, so I turned on, and that's the only reason I had to put this radio on station on it before nine o'clock. And when I heard you, I thought, wait a minute, this is this is religion. But then I, I kept thinking, no, this is religion. This is fact. All of this is a fact. And it's clear. There's no distortion. There's no, uh, you know, uh, bias or anything. You're, you're an amazing source of thought for knowledge. Uh, I want to tell you that uh, I think we should recommend that your show be segmentized by topic and then played in classrooms instead of history books. Because the history books, you know, if you go to Texas, they have laws that you can't talk about racism and uh, state rights in the way the Civil War. You know, that's what we call that, BS, <laughs> instead of the truth. So these people really have to know the truth or they're not going to live right. Um, and, and, and frankly, your, your show gives, you know, you have all the experts on, you know, I don't know if you realize that you're going to do this, but you really brought a totally unfiltered message of history and reason. Um, it just doesn't, it doesn't exist anywhere as far as I know. I mean, I've looked everywhere, and, and you know, there are agencies that do things in certain subject areas, you know, like uh, common dreams and so on, but uh, you just do it all. I mean, every issue that comes up, you cover it, and you cover it with all the experts, and none of them are a bias or anything else, so you know, you're better than books, to be honest. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I shouldn't be so selfish, but no, you, no, you just struck me so much. I'm sorry. No, no, I appreciate it. We just, what all we try to do is spread truth, right? Right, yes. And, and so, you know, and, and so, and that's it. And, you know, and thank you, and thank you for just being so kind to us this morning. It means a whole lot. Well, time. let me say one more thing before I get off. Um, yes, when you had your brother, uh, Jonathan, on, who I see yesterday or the day before, um, I was listening and I thought to myself, my God, there's something in this message that's just driving me nuts. And then the bell rang. I said, integrity. You know, he has integrity. He doesn't have, you know, nobody's uh, bent on him. He solely focuses on exactly what should be right, and he doesn't care about anything else. And you're the same way. And I thought, you know, if, if this country had integrity, we'd have no more problems. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm I'm probably trying to be too nice. You know, to be honest, I have a lot to tell you uh, the next time I meet you at uh, Rainbow Porsche, if that's possible. Well, come on on over. You're so sweet, and thank you for that. You know I love you. Appreciate you more than I can say. Oh, and I love your mother, too. She's an amazing woman. (laughs) I thought Jesse's amazing, too. I shouldn't leave him. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, they're, they're, a, they're a heck of a combination, um, our parents. So we <laughs> thank you for that because uh, they really tried to press us, Dwight McKee, as you well know, on integrity. And, um, and I mean, because that's all you have at the end of the day, you know. And, you know, I keep hearing you can kill 
a person, but you can't kill a movement. You can kill a person, but you can't kill an idea. And only what you do for Christ will last. Remember when we used to sing that at Fellowship Dwight McKean? And we used to sing that growing up. And, you know, and, and, and that's, that's just truth. So sending you so much love, sending you so much love, Reverend Dr. Todd Geary, is the Bible being abused by Prime Minister Netanyahu to impress you as evangelicals? I mean, and it's being used to justify genocide. Well, I think what, uh, well, first, good morning to you. It, morning. Is the Bible being used? Yeah, the, the, the first word that comes to mind is again, right? Um but but it's it's typical when you have issues of uh, moral conflict. Many times, what you will see is the claim of divine right to justify immoral behavior. We've seen it not only in religion, but we've often seen it in politics. We've often seen it in case law. You see it in rulings that have come from the Supreme Court going back in history that uh, God ordered things this way. And so you cannot question how we go about doing what we're doing because this is ours by divine right. And so if you have an issue with it, don't take it up with us, take it up with your God. And so it's it's often the way that that in a cynical sort of way you you uh, you dismiss dissent, you dismiss critique, you dismiss uh, moral responsibility and moral obligation, and then you use this false justification of divine right, right? Because imagine now, why would you take the divine right as the head of the uh, of, of uh, the state of Israel? and presented to right-wing evangelicals. Well, that's the same crowd by dissent uh, that continue to say and even behave as though uh, women don't have a place in religion and uh, black folk uh, are supposed to be happy being slaves. And so what we've seen throughout history is this, this use of false interpretation, false manipulation, and as part of the process, whenever we've dealt with colonization, the two systems that would often be taken uh, hold of first of those who would eventually be the colonized is their systems of education and their systems of religion. We're going to impose our teaching and impose our religion on you, and we're going to call it divine right in the process. And it's going to put you in a position of internal conflict if you don't know uh, your own faith and if you don't know and uh, have your own uh, educational system. Uh, we're going to try to put you in a quandary where now you're not going to buck the system because to buck the system is equated with bucking God. That's what's going on here, and he's playing to a political audience in a campaign season that's going to try to make it more difficult as we're starting to hear now uh, the Biden administration lean in. I don't know what that means yet, but lean in a little bit more on Israel in terms of accountability as they are bombing now southern Gaza. This has always been a land grab. And so what what did we hear from our uh, First Nation, our Native brothers and sisters? That when the pilgrims got here, we had the land, they had the Bible. After they got here, we had the Bible, and they got the land. Hmm. So, so what does all of this mean? I mean, what are the political implications of this, Dwight McKee, on this side? You've got John Hagee and others making the argument essentially for genocide from their pulpits every Sunday. What's the end game? Well, the end game is going to be a pressure on the administration. 
to back down because everybody is not a fundamental Christian, and other people read the Bible much differently than out of the fundamental Christians. And they don't have the same interpretation, and their interpretation is going to lead them to put more and more pressure on the administration to back down and to make adjustments. So that when you look at, for example, Biden's ratings right now, uh, his poll numbers, they're at an all-time low because other different denominations are beginning to see the contradictions in their behavior and challenging them on that. And many are forsaking them on that very thing. So even the young Jewish crowd that uh, we're meeting with today is they, and they're leading these demonstrations, they have a much different interpretation of these scriptures than even that Yahoo do does and even that Biden does and they're becoming a major political force. The Islamic community is becoming a major force politically and they're going to they're the margin of difference in these swing states like Michigan and Minnesota and many of them are either going to stay out the race or go Republican and swing the race away from the Democrats uh, and be the reason that Biden is not the president again. And so there are major political implications, political implications in how you interpret these scriptures and how they play out in the public square. Reverend Wilson, where do you see this going? I mean, is there a well, real discussion within Christendom, particularly in the United States, about this issue? Yes, I think that what we have to look at, as uh, Dr. Yuri and uh, others have said, this is about power moves from kingdom to kingdom. Uh, when the scripture, the text in First Samuel 15, is talking about Saul, who rose to power by oppressing and uh, taking land, if you will, and oppressing others in order that he might become the leader of of the nation. And so people tend to forget that you have in all of our structures people who who want to grab power more than they care about the indigenous people. You look at what's happening in Ukraine with Russia. It's not about making things better, making life better for, for people in Russia or Ukraine. It is about amassing control of resources and land. When you look at Haiti, how it has struggled over the years, and yet Haiti has been uh, the, uh, the basis for the liberation of, of, uh, of America. And yet they, they, uh, people have raped Haiti's resources of orchids and, and rice. You look at uh, Africa, the continent of Africa, where all of our natural resources occur. And there are wars around that continent taking uh, the natural resources but trying to control the land upon which the resources exist. And so when you look at America one of the most powerful nations in the world, America is now trying to figure out who can we control, really, so that we might maintain a position of power. Do we align ourselves? And these political alliances are based on power moves. It's like playing chess in real life. And so, yes, uh, people are now looking at religion and and our faith very different. We are now... uh, 
coming to a, a, a point in, in our history where the high holy days of most of the nation's religions are coming around the same time. And what do we say about uh, no celebration in Bethlehem uh, mm. this Christmas? What do we say about that? And so Christians have to wrestle with our faith. Our Jewish brothers and sisters have have to look at what does it mean to have Hanukkah starting uh, shortly this month in the midst of uh, so much war and violence. How do we interpret our, uh, our Old Testament and our New Testament. And so these are some discussions that we must have. And then our children are questioning the very essence of our faith and, and, the, and the books that, that we have given them, the Bible and the Torah, and they're trying to figure out what should they believe, a, no, a whole other generation uh, of people. So, yes, it's politically, it, it says America must be very careful how we move at this moment. I think that's why many of the faith leaders are suggesting that we move uh, looking at a ceasefire and then a discussion for justice and righteousness. Because all of our faiths talk about righteousness and justice and peace. Sure. And so, and that's that's where America better align itself if if we are to be the America that the founders and framers of the Constitution uh, believed us to be. Well, everybody, abusing the Bible is not new, but it has to stop. Let's talk about the U.S. House vote to declare anti-Zionism anti-Semitism. What will that mean? Whoa, what does that mean? Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show in just a few minutes. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. It is Tuesday, December 5th, 2023. Wow, wow, wow. Can you believe we're closing in on the end of the year? Can't believe Christmas is here. The religious season is here. All these holidays. Where did 2023 go? And now we're looking at the presidential season. I want you to keep it locked right here on WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, because this is where you're going to get the best political talk anywhere. Indeed, during the last election cycle, the most time spent listening of any radio station in the Chicago area was WCPT. That's right. So Joan Esposito in the afternoon, Patty Vasquez in the evening, and and just on and on and on from sunrise to sunset and to midnight and all over again. We've got the best radio for you. So I am Santita Jackson. It's a joy to be with you today. Call us at 773-763-9278-773-763-WCPT. I want to know what your thoughts are about anti-Zionism being equated with uh, anti-Semitism. The U.S. House will be voting on such a resolution uh, shortly. It's expected to, to go up for a vote this week. What does that mean? What is Zionism? What is anti-Zionism? What is anti-Semitism? There's a conflation. The conflation of it all um, is now being disaggregated in this moment, in this post-October 7th moment. So let's talk about that. I've got a really, really interesting panel led by Leslie Williams, brilliant, brilliant writer and thinker, um, who wrote a tremendous piece in Truth Out, Anti-Defamation League, 
stop pretending to be a civil rights organization. Indeed, they have been under fire. But she's been, uh, she's a young African-American woman, and you will still be young because we're in that same category, Miss Leslie. <laughs> oh, I appreciate okay. that. Well, certainly young at heart. <laughs> but she uh, converted to Judaism, and it's a, she has a fascinating story, a very fascinating story, and we cannot wait to talk with her and Dwight McKee, brilliant social scientist, and attorney Mark Fancher, a brilliant, brilliant writer and a lawyer, and, uh, and Reverend Dr. Todd Ewey, brilliant lawyer and, uh, and pastor. So let's get right to it, everybody. Let's get to some of these headlines so we can get to the rest of the show. Uh, the U.S. set a grim record for mass shootings in a single year, everybody. The 37th and 38th shootings this year, in which four people or more, not including the shooters, happened on Sunday. Israel's military is pushing into the southern Gaza Strip where they told everybody to go. 1.8 million refugees now, everybody. If the bullets and the bombs don't get them, the disease will. It's so tragic. Israel has called this new phase of its war, uh, called it this, the new phase of its war, um, after they ended their pause in fighting on Friday. The U.N. chief said yesterday that civilians have nowhere safe to go. Indeed, the United Nations has said the most unsafe place in the world to be a child is now Gaza. The U.S. could soon run out of money to support Ukraine. Funding will dry up in weeks, the White House told Congress yesterday. It said that it would kneecap Ukraine in its war with Russia. The Supreme Court seemed torn about a Purdue Pharma bankruptcy plan. Justices questioned the plan, which would allocate billions of dollars to ease the opioid crisis, but also shield the Bickler family, allow them to keep their millions as they made money from this crisis. Sad news about the math scores, everybody, for U.S. students. It hit an all-time low on an international exam, the PISA exam. Given to students in 81 countries was the first comparison of global achievement since the pandemic upended education. 15-year-olds in the U.S. had a 13 percentage plunge. In Chicago, we're going to see a high of 41 degrees. It will be snow showers. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 35 degrees and cloudy. And in the NFL, the Bengals in overtime were triumphant over the Jaguars, 34 to 31. Uh, The Timberwolves and the Bulls have the night off, but tomorrow night they'll be back on. In the NHL, the Predators will be facing off against Chicago, and the Wild will be facing off against the Flames. Before we get into the show, you know, we're looking to, oh, and they have found a challenger. That's right. Remember, APAC is putting in $100 million to find challengers to the, uh, to the squad. Well, Jamal Bryant, it's not Jamal Bryant, I'm thinking of the pastor. Jamal Bowman now has a challenger. He just made a trip to Israel, and now he will be facing off against Jamal Bowman. Mm, you see how that's going to work. Can't wait to talk about that in the coming weeks. But if you want to buy a house, the big barrier to buying a house is saving the 20% to purchase your home. Most Americans just can't do it. It's just too expensive today. I mean, most of us, many if not most of us, are now using our credit cards to buy groceries. That's how tough it is. Most of us cannot afford to go to the emergency room. That's $400. We just don't have it. You don't have $2,000 or a few hundred dollars for an emergency. So it is a tremendous opportunity that Team Hochberg is presenting to you. Instead of the 20% to 
put down on a home instead of 10% or even 5 All you need is 1% and no private mortgage insurance to purchase a home if you qualify for this program. 1% down, that's it. Up until now, saving for this down payment has been the downfall of most Americans. It's been the bane of our existences. But Team Hawkberg now has a loan program to help all of you listeners, everyone within the sound of my voice and beyond, to become homeowners. That is the cornerstone of wealth in uh, America. That is indeed the cornerstone of the American dream. That's what we have been told. So let's look at this, everybody. Team Hawkberg wants to help you and everybody you know. If you want to help your child buy a house, if you need to buy a house, if you're looking to do something like that, well, guess what? Your co-workers, tell everybody about it. One percent down. No private mortgage insurance. If you're purchasing a home, do yourself a favor. Call Team Hawkberg at 855-56-DAVID, 855-56-DAVID, or go to 56david.com and find out about this. It's a tremendous opportunity. It's a tremendous opportunity, and do not let it go. Well, what about this new resolution that will equate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. It's going to make it really tough for people. The U.S. House of Representatives is, vote, is, is expected to vote on this this week, possibly as soon as, uh, well, maybe last evening, but that did not happen. It's resolution declaring that anti-Zionism, quote, is anti-Semitism, a measure that Jewish peace campaigners have called deeply anti-Semitic. It's House Resolution 894. It embraces the International Holocaust Remembrances, Remembrance Alliance's controversial working definition of anti-Semitism, which, while not explicitly mentioning anti-Zionism, includes, quote, denying the English people their right, the the Jewish people, excuse me, their right to self-determination and claiming that the existence of the State of Israel is a racist endeavor. So... Uh, What about this House vote on declaring anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism? What does that mean? Some people are saying this is a cynical effort to conflate criticism of the government of Israel with anti-Semitism. Do you agree with that? Call me at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. Uh, you know, we have got, uh, of course, Dwight McKee with us, a brilliant social scientist, Reverend Dr. Todd Yeary, uh, pastor of the Douglas Memorial Community Church National Leadership Team of Rainbow Push, and attorney Mark Thatcher, uh, National Conference of Black Lawyers. But we're joined by Leslie Williams, fascinating woman, fascinating woman and a brilliant writer, I must say. Uh, I was really struck by this piece in Truth Out in which you declared that the Anti-Defamation League should stop pretending to be a civil rights organization. Indeed, they are coming under a fusillade of fire for a lot of their political uh, positions and um, and for uh, really positioning themselves as a civil rights organization, even though, um, you know, it's interesting in part of your biography as a young African-American woman who converted to Judaism. I mean, in fact, we have a lot of the same friends because you went to school with a lot of, um, you went to, you grew up with a lot of my friends, which is like really exciting to see, right? Um, And you're from Jewish Voice for Peace. um, That is right. uh, And just talk to me. Anti-Zionism, what do you make of this resolution declaring anti-Zionism 
um, anti-Semitism, and how does that fit into your own faith journey? Well, to begin with, anyone who says that anti-Zionism is the same as anti-Semitism is demonstrating a lot of ignorance about the history of Zionism. So Zionism, or you know, political Zionism, really started in the 1800s um, with the Theodore Herzl. And at the time, it was seen as a fringe minority movement within the Jewish community. Um, it really was not until after the Holocaust that the idea of Zionism became accepted widely throughout the Jewish community. Um, but there were many, many different movements. There was um, a kind of a social justice socialist movement called the Bund that was very opposed to Zionism. Many, many rabbis and Jewish religious figures were opposed to Zionism because they felt that the return of the Jewish people to Israel was something that God had to do, that it was not something that a secular movement should do. So, you know, in dismissing all of the anti-Zionist movements within Judaism, uh, this resolution and the claim that anti-Zionism is, is the same as anti-Semitism is really erasing a lot of Jewish history. And I would encourage readers to take a look at a fascinating book called Prophets Outcast, a century of dissident Jewish writing about Zionism in Israel uh, that contains a lot of the work of very thoughtful Jewish writers, including Albert Einstein, Hannah Arendt, uh, Yuri Avneri, Noam Chomsky, Judith Butler, uh, who have criticized Zionism and have refused to identify themselves as Zionism. And my own organization, Jewish Voice for Peace, um, has been officially anti-Zionist for several years and solidly in solidarity with Palestinian liberation. And we talk about a Judaism beyond Zionism. Um, if you look at the history of the Jewish people, a lot of what we really think of as the quintessential values of Judaism developed in the diaspora. So, you know, you had a religion that was initially based on temple cult sacrifices. It was very location-based. And after uh, the Romans destroyed the temple and destroyed Jewish life in Palestine in the ancient times, uh, the Jews were dispersed around the world. And really Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, Judaism as we know it, with a focus on the home and uh, with a focus on ethics, that is what really became Judaism. And, you know, you'd asked about my conversion. A big part of what motivated me to convert was what I saw as the strong tradition of Jewish ethics and the strong focus on right behavior in this world as opposed to primarily focusing on the next world. And there's a Jewish principle in the Talmud that I've always loved, and to me it's always seemed to be a really strong rebuke to political Zionism. And it's the concept of, is his blood redder than mine? And essentially it's saying that you do not have the right to endanger an innocent person's safety or health or life simply because you feel your own safety or life is endangered. That you have no right to say that your blood is redder than anyone else's. And to me, that's a very profound rebuke to political Zionism as we see it, because Zionism, as it has been practiced in the 20th century, the 20th and the 21st century, um, has been essentially Israelis saying that their blood is redder than Palestinians, that their right to safety and security supersedes the right of Palestinians to safety and security. 
And um, so for me, converting to Judaism, converting to that ethical dimension of Judaism, which is what I see in Jewish activists from Jewish Voice for Peace and the Center for Jewish Nonviolence, and if not now, and never again action. That, to me, is the Judaism that I want to be a part of, not a Zionism that is ethnically exclusive, that was intentionally designed to deprive a, a 750,000 people of their homes and, in many cases, their lives, all in the name of Jewish security. Hmm. Leslie Williams, everybody. I mean, so what do you make of, I mean, because you now, some people are beginning to go after the ADL. Now, they've always been right wing. And you also mm-hmm. mentioned, because we're from the same era, uh, there was a, there was an absolute break with blacks and Jews over affirmative action, for example. Uh, Jews were over-indexing yeah. in terms of their numbers in, in terms of getting into these schools, but black people were shut out. I wish we mm-hmm. could have met somewhere in the middle because there was no understanding of you know, because the thing is, as a as a Jewish person, you can pass into whiteness. As a black person, I can never mm-hmm. do that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, it, I'm really glad that you brought that up. There's another, um, you know, I am a librarian in a previous life, so I always have to recommend books to people. But another book that I think particularly your listeners might be interested in is called Black Power and, and Palestine. And it traces the history of um, black freedom movements and their connection to Palestine. And, you know, the issue you mentioned about affirmative action, you know, there, there were a lot of books and studies talking about what happened between the Black Jewish Alliance. And uh, you will often hear um, white Jews complaining about African-Americans not supporting Israel because we marched with you in the civil rights movement. We saved you in the civil rights movement. And in fact, a couple of days ago, the actress Juliana Margulis got in trouble for saying exactly that, that um, she couldn't understand why black people weren't supporting Israel after all that um, Jews had done for black people, and that we must have been brainwashed into not supporting Jews because there's no possible reason that uh, black people could um, not be standing with Israel. But um, the fact is that if you look at Malcolm X and Tori Kwame and uh, June Jordan, the Black Arts Movement, the Black Panthers, all of these groups were solidly, solidly in support of Palestine because they saw the history of Palestine as mirroring the colonization that had happened in Africa, that you had white European colonists going to a black or brown country Um, expelling or dominating or oppressing and exploiting the indigenous residents. And so they clearly felt a very strong connection with Palestine. And although many um, white supporters of Israel claim Martin Luther King as, um, as one of their, as one of their supporters, I think it's important. I mean, he, he had, he did say many things in support of Israel back in 66, 67. But we have to remember that he died in 1968, not very long after the Six-Day War, and really before the occupation took place. So I think it's pretty difficult to um, say that Martin Luther King would have supported what became of Israel after his death. I really doubt that he would have supported... Wait, wait, wait. My parents worked for him. He wouldn't have supported this. Dr. King supported No, I mean... You know, I mean... And he, he was against war. 
And so to think that Martin Luther King would have been in support of a system that up till now has killed at least 16,000 Gazans, 800 Gazans have died just since the truce was broken a few days ago. There's no way that he would have supported that. Um, and the, the majority of the black um, civil rights and liberation figures from that time period were solidly in support of Palestine. But I think another thing to remember when you, when you talk about the Black Jewish Alliance, um, in the earlier days when white American Jews were more urban, when they were actually living in, in cities, when they were actually more in solidarity with the working class, you know, there's the whole Jewish working class movement and labor movement and involvement in unions and everything. There was more solidarity. But through the 60s and 70s, you know, as you said, the, um, white American Jews can uh, slip into um, white privilege, basically. And that was beginning to happen at the, you know, towards the end of the civil rights movement. There was um, much more white flight to the suburbs, and many white American Jews were part of that white flight to the suburbs. Um, so it's not really, I don't feel it's that black Americans abandoned Jews. I feel that many white American Jews abandoned those urban progressive roots and they accepted white privilege. Um, they accepted that mantle of white privilege. And one thing that is extremely irritating to me and I think to a lot of black Americans when you know, this talk of anti-Semitism is brought up and, you know, the ADL, of course, will talk widely about how much anti-Semitism there is and how much anti-Semitism there is in the black community. There is, there is anti-Semitism in the United States, but there is not institutional anti-Semitism the way there is institutional blackness. So if you are white American and Jewish, all of the quality of life indicators, your ability to get a good education, your ability to get good health care, um, your ability to live in a safe community where you're not threatened by gun violence, your access to healthy food and supermarkets that have fresh vegetables and fresh meat, your, your ability to um, simply drive and not be arrested or shot by the police. None of those things affect white American Jews in the same way that they, that they affect African Americans. So this, this um, determination on part of groups like the Anti-Defamation League to elevate anti-Semitism, to, to constantly talk about anti-Semitism the way this resolution does, as though it is the primary and most dangerous form of racism and oppression in the United States, is frankly ludicrous and really insulting to black and brown people, and I would say not just African-Americans, but Latino-Americans, um, Muslim and Arab-Americans. Um, I know that those two things aren't the same, but they are racialized in the same way. Um, very insulting to groups that do routinely face institutional racism. So I think that's an important point for people to remember. And, uh, you know, the Anti-Defamation League they are their primary mission is really supporting Israel. Now, you know, they talk a good game about civil rights, but they have a history of spying and surveilling the African National Congress and the NAACP and SNCC. Um, they have a history of targeting and attacking African Americans who say anything remotely critical of Israel, whether it's Keith Ellison or Mark Lamont Hill or Michelle Alexander or Cornell West. Um, so to say that the Anti-Defamation League has in any way truly been a support to the black community is, I think, a, um, a fallacy. Well, yeah, I can tell you. Wrong. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that doesn't, I mean, and it doesn't make you anti-Jewish. It makes me pro-Truth. No. You know? Well, hold it makes thought, me pro-Truth. Because I, I, I want this panel to respond to what they've heard from you. Just fascinating. Leslie Williams, everyone. Brilliant writer, brilliant actress, Jewish voice for peace, and my girl from lab school. But I went to John J. Pershing Public School, but I'm not mad at you. All my neighbors went to school with you. Okay. Of course it is. We can still be, we can still be fam. Look, we're sisters because you went to school with my whole neighborhood. I love it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When you said lab, I'm like, wait a minute, when? (laughs) I love it. Stay right there with more of the Santita Jackson Show back in just a moment. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey everybody, welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show. A special guest today, but part of the family after today, Leslie Williams, the Jewish voice for peace. Got to have you back on the show as often as you can get here. I know it's early. Don't hate me. Don't hate me. She's a brilliant writer and activist with Jewish Voice for Peace and um, has a lot of really interesting things to say. Her own journey has been, um, it's a journey I think that we can all be on because I think that we, Leslie, feel a lot of different things, you know, and it depends upon your perspective and what you have lived. I mean, it's a funny thing. The more you find out about your parents, the more you can track a lot of stuff. Um, I didn't, you know, my mother's father's from the West Indies, and he left the United States because he felt it was so racist. He just, he was like, you know, I didn't go up here. I don't want to be bothered with this. But he was also a Garveyite, right? So when I I look at my mother's own politics, and I look at my father's politics, and racially he's very mixed, which is something that she brings up. She said, because I, when I met your father's family, many of them were white or looked white. So it was just a, it's just, it's a, you know, people come from a whole lot of different perspectives, right? I mean, and, and then you merge into this, you know, these tributaries, lakes and streams come into a river and then they move into an ocean eventually. But I just think that your story is just so fascinating. And it's one that we need to pay attention to because I think we need to be open um, well, you to know, these different traditions. I, it, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned Garvey and um, Garveyism because there are some African-Americans who make analogies between the Garveyite movement and the Zionist movement. And I will say this about um, Zionism and the attachment to Zionism you know, and also to Garveyism. I think when people have been oppressed and terrorized for generations, uh, they've always been in the minority. Um, they've always been overwhelmed. There is a very natural desire to be in the majority, to be in a place where your culture dominates uh, and where you feel safe. And, you know, I think we saw some of that in the Garvey movement, the Black, the Back to Africa movement. Um, and there is some, I think, genuine sentiment among a lot of Jew- Jewish Americans and obviously Israelis to have that kind of community, to know that you're safe, that you your culture dominates, you don't have to be afraid of anybody else. But I think the difference is, I mean, you know, when I think about what our homeland is, so, you know, I mean, according to 23andMe, you know, my my homeland is 90, 90% West Africa. 
so, yes, I may think of that as a homeland. I want the ability to go visit there. I might want to live there at some point. But I would never say that I and people of my particular ethnic group have an exclusive right to live there and that only people of my ethnic group should be able to have full and complete civil rights, should be able to walk on certain streets or drive in certain roads. And the people who live there that were from a different ethnic background should be locked into neighborhoods surrounded by checkpoints. So there's a difference between saying that it's your homeland and saying that it has to be exclusively your homeland and that you get exclusive rights from being in that homeland. And that, I think, is a fundamental difference between Zionism and um, other kind of movements like the Darviite movement. Um, and but you know, but I do I understand why Zionism is so important to a lot of people, but I think it's honestly misguided. I mean, the idea, first of all, that this is making you safe. Um, since the 1920s and really the beginnings of uh, what has been described as the um, Arab-Israeli conflict, at least 25,000, possibly 28,000 um, Jews have been killed in the various wars and resistance movements. So, you know, you walk through Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, and one of the things that's really shocking is you see all these young 19, 20-year-olds carrying rifles openly. And everyone is given gas masks, and they have these regular security and bombing and air raid drills. Does that sound like a society where people feel safe? And, you know, do people honestly think that they're safer in this, in this heavily militarized enclave they've created uh, than if they were living, say, in the United States? I don't see how that is a form of safety. And so one of the things that um, I've been working on with Parseo, the anti-Semitism framework of, of collective liberation, is looking at how we provide actual safety, not just for Jews, but for Muslims and Arabs and black people and everybody else, how we work on a framework of collective liberation addressing white supremacy, which is really far more of a threat to Jews than Palestinians are. Um, and look at what would, would, would really provide safety and security. And resolutions like this one, which simply go on and on about anti-Zionism and try to demonize Palestinian freedom songs, try to demonize the, freedom, the Palestinian um, chants from the river to the sea, none of that is really working to make Jews safer. And in fact, I think you could, you could state that it is making Jews less safe because when you identify, when you claim that Israel is the land of the Jewish people and that all Jews are part of Israel, Israel is all Jews, then that does justify attacking Jews um, if you are angry at Israel. Because, you know, you can't really have it both ways. If you say that all Jews are part of Israel, that Israel is the, is the home of the Jewish people, then, yes, it would make sense to target Jews if you're upset with Israel. So um, this resolution is actually making Jews less safe. And frankly, I think the concept of Zionism has made Jews less safe. Well, you can't be criticism-proof and critique-proof and dissent-proof 
And that is what right. uh, many people are saying that is happening. Mark Fancher, your thoughts about this resolution, House Resolution uh, 894, that was introduced by two Jewish Republicans. Uh, and some people are saying that this is, as a, quote, a cynical effort to conflate criticism of the government of, of Israel with anti-Semitism and to shut down dissent, shut down people having the discussion about what's happening over in Gaza right now and the West Bank, both. Yes, it, it is cynical, um, as is the entire doctrine of Zionism. Uh, it's cynical, it's cowardly, and it's opportunistic. Uh, from the outset, it has always represented a, an imperialist political agenda. And it is cowardly in that it has never been willing to be upfront about that fact. It is always hidden uh, behind religion. It is hidden behind the Jewish faith. And any time it is threatened, any time it is in any way criticized, uh, then it quickly defaults uh, to falling behind uh, the, the Jewish faith and claiming that what they're doing is consistent with God's will, uh, when in fact it is exactly against anything that the Jewish faith is, is about if you look at its most mm -hmm. fundamental tenets. And, and I think that if, if we look, I, I wanted to return to the, uh, the discussion about Pan-Africanism for just a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, th there is this natural longing for people to have security. And, and the best way to have it is in the form of a state that protects you. And Zionism, typical of Zionism, uh, it, it comes and it says that basically we're the same as Pan-Africanists. Uh, we're doing the same thing, so therefore we should support each other. Uh, when in fact they're very different for all of the reasons that our sister mm -hmm. has laid out, but also based on one fundamental fact. Uh, those people who have been the victims of settler colonialism around the world, where people have gone and they've stolen their lands and they've imposed oppression on them, they are morally and in every way justified in resisting that type of oppression, that type of displacement, uh, that type of colonization, because they're reclaiming land that they are indigenous to. Uh, Pan-Africanism is pure because it is an effort by African people to reclaim that which was taken from them. Zionism comes and it lies. It blatantly lies and says that these Ashkenazi Jews, people whose origins are in Russia and Eastern Europe and other places, that these people are somehow, through some twisted logic, through lots of lies, are somehow indigenous to the Palestinian region, and that they have a right to go in and reclaim it. And if you push them too hard on the, on the, the genealogical aspect of this, uh, then they default yet again to saying that they're spiritually entitled to it because of what the scripture says, because of prophecy. So we understand the bankruptcy of this. And, and unfortunately, one of the characteristics of Zionist culture has been that it has used coercion to try and, and impose its will. Uh, it does it through force, as we're watching in Gaza now. Uh, it does it politically through this resolution that we're looking at. Uh, it does it socially. I mean, so that in years past, when uh, they've been upset about something that Reverend Jackson said, or they're upset about something that Minister Farrakhan has said, or whatever it is, then they don't attempt to try and change minds 
or to transform people, as would anyone who is a sincere person of faith, what they do is they run around to everybody who's prominent and try and force them to denounce or renounce individuals, to renounce human beings and to say that these are bad people. You must say this. You must say this. And it represents a fundamental lack of an understanding about life and about human beings. When you try and force people to do what you want them to do, even if you succeed in forcing them to do that for the moment, you do not change them. You do not cause them to stop coming after you and to try and come out from under any type of oppression that you've imposed on them. You only intensify their resolve to try and to get you. And so the more that the, that the Israeli government, the Israeli state, tries to force its will in, in Gaza or force its will in Congress, or to force its will, it only wakes people up. It causes them to see the contradictions. And, in a, and, and God is, a, is, an amazing, is an amazing individual in that he understands this dynamic. And the more evil that people put out, the more the evil is exposed and the more it brings people around to good. So the irony of all of this, including this resolution, is that it's causing people to understand more clearly exactly the bankruptcy of the Zionist doctrine and to oppose it. Mm. Reverend Dr. Chandier. Yeah. Oh, no, Leslie, your response. Well, if you want to let um, somebody else respond first, that's oh, nice. sure. I, I did sure. want to say a little bit about the history of, of Zionism, too. Oh, no, please um, go one, on before they respond. So I think another, yes, I would, I would agree with um, what you said. Um, I think another thing that is really key to understanding Zionism, so we talk about Zionism as though it's a movement for the Jewish people, but it was always a movement for the European Jewish people. And, um, you know, political Zionism was fundamentally European, and in the pamphlet The Jewish State, in which Theodor Herzl outlined his view, um, he said that Jews in Palestine will form a portion of a rampart of Europe against Asia, an outpost of civilization as opposed to barbarism. And many of the early Zionist writings talked about Africans, Arabs, and even Jews from the Middle East as being savage, um, primitive, only, only slightly more advanced than the Arabs. Not surprising that the crime rate is rising, again, talking about Arab Jews coming into Israel, given their chronic laziness and hatred for any kind of work. So this was clearly a very racist doctrine right from the beginning. And in fact, um, initially, the, you know, the, original, um, the original settlers of Israel in 1948 were primarily the Ashkenazic European Jews. But they needed more people to hold the land because they had been given in the partition, they had been given um, a huge slice of Palestine and they didn't actually have enough people to um, hold it. So what they did was they invited and in some cases coerced the Jews of um, places like Iraq and Morocco to come to Israel. And they made all kinds of promises about how they were going to have this really wonderful life in Israel. Um, they actually worked to make life more difficult for them in their home countries. And then when they came to Israel, they were settled 
along the border region, so they were in the most dangerous areas um, on the borders with um, Palestine, where the European Jews were settled more in the center. And if you notice, um, on October 7th, many of the young people who were killed on October 7th looked more Arab because they were descendants of these um, Iraqi and Arab Jews because they were settled closer to the border. Um, Many of them who had been teachers and doctors and civil servants in their home countries were simply told, now you're going to be farmers and given a farm and some tools and just left to manage on their own. And some of them literally starved to death or died of disease. So this is how Zionism treated non-European Jews. And there's a wonderful article by an Iraqi Jewish author, Ella Shohat, called um, Zionism from the Standpoint of Its Jewish Victims that talks about that. And there's an Iraqi Jewish author, Avish Shalayim, who's become a very strong advocate of Palestinians, who writes about his family's experience um, immigrating to Israel. So I think that is really important for people to understand. So, um, you know, Zionism... People talk about different forms of Zionism, cultural Zionism or religious Zionism. So, you know, cultural Zionism is a little bit more like the, you know, the feeling of going back to the motherland, the homeland. But it's political Zionism that we are talking about here. And political Zionism has always been racist, has always been fundamentally about establishing a little Europe within this area. Part of the reason the United States and and Western countries have been so supportive is that they felt that they have this sort of toehold in the Middle East with our connection to to Israel. Um, And you notice that Europe often tries, that Israel often tries to make itself out as though it's European, that they participate in European song contests. And that that becomes the problem, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. So you there's know, the mean, pretense the, the that it's European. Yeah, yeah I the mean, whiteness. It's, it, the whiteness. It's, it, that's their problem in their in their neighborhood. You know, mm-hmm. There's a sea of whiteness, or white, 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 pro, pro, white proximate, as, and the more yeah. white proximate you are, the more I mean, really, the more you aspire to whiteness, and that becomes the problem. And so they, they, yeah. they don't get along with anybody. And, they, you know, they're, it's, it's just a complete misappropriation, and it's an abuse of Judaism, because that's not what this is. I want to get a it couple is. people and, in. But, yes, yes. So go ahead. Oh, no, but stay with me for a little while, because we're going to continue this conversation on the other side uh, on the YouTube channel. But I wanted to get Dwight McKee and Reverend Dr. Urian. Reverend Dr. Urian, i got a couple of minutes for you. I know a lot well, has just, been said. <laughs> a whole lot has been said, um, and, and it's important to, to understand uh, this issue of, of whiteness. That, that theme has now come out. We've talked about land control and national identity, uh, and then we've also talked about dissent. The resolution that's going through Congress is really kind of pour cold water on uh, the expanding dissent within the chamber. Think about it. Rashida Tlaib, uh, 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 Congresswoman Jabhal, Omar, and the others who signed on to uh, the, the, the push for a ceasefire, right? So, so this is really to kind of say within the politics of the House that if we're able to pass this resolution, anybody that would raise dissent in the deliberation 
about how the U.S. is going to support uh, this land grab. We st- I still honestly believe that this is this is a proof text for a land grab that now you 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 stifle dissent in the chamber and you reach out to a base outside the chamber who is going to buy into this notion and has bought into the notion that whiteness is a property right. And so as I am asserting my property right based on whiteness, it now allows me to take land control by force because at the end of the day, whiteness as property and land control as property, those are synonymous terms. And anybody that comes against it, either in political speech or in religious pushback, you then get to be labeled as anti, whatever the anti is. And once I get you labeled, I can now control you and manipulate you for my purposes to continue to advance my property interests, both in terms of my identity, but also in terms of how I actually control land and resources, which has been at the root of this ruse that we've seen going on in Gaza since October the 7th. Hmm. Dwight McKee, a couple of minutes for you. Yeah, and they don't identify with white people. They are white people. Judaism is a religion, not a race. These people are not Semitic people. The Semitic people in this in this conversation are the Arabics and the Palestinians. These Jews are Russian, Turkish, or uh, Jew, or Jews by conversion. They didn't convert to the sixth century, and so the assumption that somehow these are Semitic people and to be against them is to be anti-Semitic is a not understanding of this history. These are children of Japheth and who has imposed themselves into the Middle East based on a land grab, redefine themselves as a Semitic people who they have no direct lineage to at the expense of the Semitic people that already lived there. So it's a distortion of history and logic and in many ways religion. I guess what I do want to say, though, in closing, is that I don't think that a lot of the hubris that Netanyahu comes comes from his relationship with America, I don't think he understands America, United States of America, that they operate in their interest, and they will get them out there and throw it under the bus. The last time we saw the the Viet Viet, uh, They were trying to jump on helicopters because America abandoned them. The last time we saw the Afghanistans, they were chasing airplanes trying to jump on the wings because America abandoned them. It's about to happen in Ukraine the same way. The United States will get these Jews out there looking for another crusade and abandon them. And the next thing they know, boy, they'd be out there by themselves being bombed by the whole Middle East. So they had to be very careful when they think that this imperial uh, card is going to overlap in their reality over time. Well, you know, Leslie, this is this is a conversation that has been that we have been needing to have this for generations. But, you know, that's yeah. part of the problem with this resolution, tamping down the discussion um, well, um, in the attempt to, of, to kill dissent mm-hmm. is, is dangerous. It's dangerous and it it's, makes it's very dangerous. It, you know, I mean, and, and it's particularly dangerous, I think, to our Jewish brothers and sisters, because everybody is getting will get thrown under the bus for this. You, I mean, when you read the comments 
mm-hmm. in the following articles, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. It's like they have opened up a whole can of, um, so, of amp- yes, anti-Semitism. That, I, have, um, I have about a minute and a half. Okay. So, yes, won't deny that there's anti-Semitism, but again... You are talking, at least in the United States, of people who are white, middle class, and have a lot of privilege as opposed to mm-hmm. Palestinians who do not. So recently in Evanston, for example, um, the Equity and Empowerment Commission uh, proposed a ceasefire resolution. The two chairs of the committee are African-American women, and they were faced with a hostile, I can't think of any other word, but mob of white American, very privileged, middle-class Jews attacking them, calling them ignorant, calling them stupid, calling them anti-Semitic, because they dared to raise a resolution that spelled out the truth about Palestinian oppression. And yet these people were saying that seeing themselves as being the victims, whereas they are not truly the victims here. Um, But I think, you know, the other thing... um, Many younger American Jews, every poll shows that um, younger and younger generations do not have this same strong identification with Zionism, that they are seeing the, um, the, how this violates actual Jewish traditions and doctrines, um, which is why we see so many young Jews demonstrating it across the country, taking over the Statue of Liberty in Grand Central Station and the Capitol Rotunda, and I was one of the ones taking over the Capitol Rotunda, by the way, um, saying that we do not accept this in our name. We do not accept this carnage and abuse and ethnic cleansing and genocide in the name of supposedly protecting Jews. We fundamentally reject this as having anything to do with Jewishness. So, you know, there's definitely a sea change going on, and I think that's important for people to hear. I think these legacy institutions the Jewish Federation, the Anti-Defamation League. People are actually leaving the Anti-Defamation League, and yet hundreds and hundreds of people have been joining movements like JVP. Um, so I think the people at the top, and that would include people like Biden and Pelosi and Schumer and all those people, they are not listening to what people are actually saying. Uh, the vast majority of um, Democrats want to ceasefire. Um, the vast majority of them believe that um, Israel is indeed practicing apartheid, and those leaders are not listening to what people are saying, including to what many, many, many young Jews are saying. Well, hold on. Let's let's keep this conversation going on the Santita Jackson Show for just a few minutes. I know everybody's got to go today, but stay right here on the Santita Jackson Show YouTube channel. Fascinating conversation. Leslie Williams, you're part of the family now. You gotta come back. Don't leave yet. Stay right there. Back with more. Well, you know, go get on to the other side to the Santita Jackson Show YouTube channel so we can continue this conversation. God bless you, everybody. Love you much. I'm Santita Jackson. Have a wonderful day.